The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Well, I have a couple of I have a couple of texts in here, but I only want to read one verse to start. And that verse is 1 Corinthians 6:13. And it says, it's a nice short one. You could memorize this one. It would be good to memorize. It says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, how many of you in here are not men? There's several, right? Does that verse have anything to say to you? Does it? None of them are willing to answer because they've got to be quiet in church, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Have you ever noticed how much of the Bible is written by men to men, about men? I remember the first time that I heard or read a Christian who was talking about that, pointing that out as, as a feature of the Bible rather than a feminist pointing it out as evidence of the abuse of the patriarchy. And when all of a sudden a Christian pointed it out and said, yeah, an awful lot of the Bible is written by men to men and the women are often, in fact, most of the time, incidental or when they're addressed explicitly, it's much more brief than the instruction that's given to the men, right? Have you guys noticed this? Is it shocking for me to point it out to you? Is this something that's good? Well, it is. The the word of God has been given to us and all of it is profitable. And it's profitable not just for men, right? But it's profitable for women. And so... Um, here we read, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And that verse teaches women how they are to be. And, the, and, it, and it's not teaching them to be men, is it? It's not telling all of the women to act like men. Am I making sense? That verse does, is not saying to all of you women, Act like men, be strong. And yet there is an aspect of it that requires you to be strong as a woman, doesn't it? There's no avoiding that when Jesus speaks of John the Baptist and says, violent men are taking the kingdom of heaven by force, that there's some sort of question left in the back of our minds like, Okay, what about women? How are they supposed to get into heaven? Are they supposed to be violent men taking it by force? Is that, is that what we learn? And of course, no. And yet, is there any way for a woman to fight her sin without being violent? 
Does a woman have some sort of ability to fight her sin without being violent against it? It still requires us to put it to death, whether we're men or women, doesn't it? Well, this is part of what makes it difficult to teach on how to be a man, how to be a woman, because the moment you start talking about manhood and womanhood in the area of, uh, in the area, well, in any area that steps outside of the traditional bounds of um, how the home is to run in these very specific questions or whether women are supposed to be elders and pastors, right, where we have these explicit, we have these explicit directions that are very clear to women and about women in the New Testament in this area, right, the moment you try to step outside of those bounds, immediately the kinds of, the kinds of questions that pop up or that are going to be thrown at you as you try to teach how to be a man, how to be a woman, what it means for you to embrace the manhood that God has given you or the womanhood that God has given you is going to, it's going to, it's going to raise these kinds of questions. So it's not just a question of only the, only the men who can do push-ups are the ones who can get into heaven, right? It's also, it's also immediately, so all women are excluded from heaven. That's the, that's the, the second implication that occurs to you or to the person who wants to argue with you anyway, right? Well, in our, in our context at this conference, of course, we're speaking about ministering to those who are tempted by homosexuality or transgenderism, whether that whatever form the kinds of sexual perversions take that people have embraced or been tempted by, that's what I'm supposed to be talking about. I'm supposed to be talking about teaching men to be men and women to be women in a practical way. Because it's all well and good to realize that there's a difference between men and women and that, and that men need to be men and that women need to be women, but then you go back home and you're left sort of wishing there had been some practical instruction, so I was tasked with the practical instruction. Not that everything that I said, that I'm about to say, has already been said, but a lot of it has. (laughs) There are two parts to teaching men to be men and women to be women. In the context of this conference where we're talking about homosexuality, we're talking about ministering to those kinds of people, what you expect is that the focus is going to be on how to minister specifically to those tempted by those sins, right? And there are indeed some unique aspects to ministering to people who are tempted in those areas. But... The other part of this work is the larger part. And that is the work of teaching all men and women to be what God made them to be. Now, why did I spend all that time on men and women first? 
Well, because there's a similar kind of, there's a similar kind of tension. The tension that the Bible gives to us that it often just seems to ignore women and that they're supposed to learn uh, either by implication what this means for them or by asking their husbands at home what this means for them, right? That an awful lot of the instruction in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, is just, is just uh, reflective, if you will. It's reflective of what is taught to the men and who the men are told to be, how the men are told to act, and women are to learn from that reflection how they are to be, how they are to act, what they're supposed to be doing. Now, not to say there's nothing explicit taught to the women, and it's the same tension here today. It's not that there's nothing unique, nothing... uh, special about ministering to those who are tempted by homosexuality or those who have sexual dysphoria or those who, you can go down the list in various other ways, right? It's not that there's nothing unique there, but the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about how to teach homosexuals, right? Why? Well, because it doesn't need to. They are to be men, they are to be women, and there's an awful lot in the Bible about how to be those things, isn't there? And so that's where I really want us to, that's what I want us to recognize from the beginning is that those who are giving themselves to sexual sin that the culture is adamant, is unique, is different, is special, okay? Those who are giving themselves to that sin are not unique, are not special, but what does, what does the scripture say? No temptation has befallen you but what is common to man. And so... They need not different medicine, but more of the same medicine. Not different medicine, but more of the same medicine. And of course, the medicine is teaching men how to be men and women how to be women. So let's start first with that narrower group those who are tempted by or who are giving themselves to these perverse sins, these ones that are a complete abandoning of masculinity, of manhood. And I am, I am going to speak a little bit about women, but, but I'm going to focus primarily on the men, okay? You can take it up with me afterwards if you really are offended by that, but uh, I just don't see how to, I don't see how to teach the way the Bible teaches without following the pattern that the Bible follows. The first thing about ministering, if we're going to be, if we're going to be narrow, if we're going to, if we're going to figure out what the unique things are, 
the first thing about ministering to this group of people is that you need to know that they are tempted by this sin or giving themselves to this sin. You need to know, and of course this isn't unique, is it? This isn't unique to them. If you don't know what sins your people are struggling with, you can't help them with those sins, right? And this holds true the moment you step into the realm of sexual sin, the the moment you step into the realm of what the world calls sexual orientation, unless you find out what they're struggling with, there's no way for you to begin to address it with them. And so you need to start out believing that there are people in your church that struggle with this. You, you have to get that through your mind. We heard, I think it was yesterday, that really the percentage hasn't changed very much. It's really not that high of a percentage. But it's high enough that there are people in your church who are struggling with this, Right? And I don't care how small your church is or if it's especially insulated in homeschooling, especially in that context, you have people who are struggling with this. And so how are you going to find out? Well, you have to ask. You have to ask your people if this is something that they struggle with. Don't ignore the possibility Now then, you immediately, you need to ask, well, how would I, who who would I ask? Do I just have to ask everybody? No. (laughs) Do I just ask randomly, indiscriminately? No. There are particular things that you're looking for, aren't there? Just like every sin, there are telltale signs that, that come out that you, that you use as a, like, oh, wait, what's going on here? And you hone in on that, and then you, and then you try to figure out what's going on there. So some signs for men. First, I'll give my signs, and then I'll give my qualifications and hedge and everything that you guys want me to do, Right? If they're single, and again, a lot of this stuff has already been said. If they're single and older, not showing interest in women. If they're effeminate. If they're physically awkward with other men. Ask. For women, if they're dressing to hide the feminine nature of their body. Who was it? Who was it, Michael Foster? Where are you? Who was, who was it that you, the, the, the Christian musician, the woman that you, you called? Yeah, Jennifer Knapp. How many years ahead of time did you say that she was a lesbian? Ten, ten years before she came out as a lesbian, Michael looked at her and said, she's a lesbian. Is he... Is he a prophet? 
Is he, does he have ESP or something? How did he know? He probably knew before she knew. I mean, I don't know anything about her. I don't know what was going on in her life over the course of that 10 years, but you understand that he saw something and it was in the way she dressed. Am I right? Is that what it was? Her hair was over her face. She was ashamed of her body and she wore, she wore big, uh, big uh, shirts that, that she could hide her breasts in so you wouldn't see that she was a woman, Right? What's going on there? Something sexual is going on there. And anybody who has eyes to see can see it and ought to see it and then ought to act on it. Because probably what happened, given that amount of time, is that she was not at that time a lesbian, but that she did have issues with her sexuality, with being a woman. And it progressed. Because sin progresses, doesn't it? It progresses into more perverse and more nefarious and more damaging forms. So dressing, dressing to hide the womanly nature, the, the beauty that God has placed in her is a sign that there's something wrong. Trying to compete with men. Being butch, which is a different thing than hiding, right? It's trying to actively not be feminine. Again, not taking interest in men. Pushing other women towards flirtatious behavior, even if that flirting is with other men. Are you guys following me on that one? <laughs> women that are trying to take delight in the sexual flirtation of other women, whether that flirting is with other men or women. And you may not understand what I'm saying, but I can't explain it any more than that, except to say I've seen it. And when you see it, you'll know it. And then, for both men and women, if they have a very twisted, bad, misguided, however you want to put it, understanding of the opposite sex. And they can only understand a caricature of a woman if they're a man. Everything is processed through. They they constantly aren't getting things that are happening with, with women because they assume an entirely false understanding of what a woman is and does and how she acts. And so there, there's just this perpetual misunderstanding that's going on. That, so everything's filtered through this twisted lens. If they can only understand a caricature of a woman, 
or if a woman can only understand a caricature of a man, that's a problem. It's a sign that you ought to be asking whether they're tempted in these ways, right? Or, again, for both, if they have unhealthy and or possessive relationships with members of the same sex, right? That is an indication, that kind of possessive nature that would normally only occur in a dating relationship and yet they're not dating them and yet somehow they're acting possessive of them. I've experienced this. Uh, these things, most of these things, I'm, I'm telling you about people that I've had relationships with. In this case, I was the one who was possessed. <laughs> Another man who was possessive of me. To the extent that when I was spending time with somebody else, he sent a death threat to himself to get attention, my attention, right? Now, I said I'd give you all those qualifications and hedging things that you want. It's true that for both men and women, none of these things are necessary prerequisites to sexual sin, right? To this particular, to to homosexual temptation. Some are practiced at hiding it and so give you none of these clues. In fact, don't seem to give you any clues. Remember my dad talking about all of a sudden in the 11th hour, talking to this man he realizes there were no clues he was a man's man there was nothing there to give any indication seemingly but then that one thing was just slightly off and that's when you have to ask but yes you'll you'll see men and women both who are practiced at hiding it and you'll see others that are practiced at fighting it but without any help and they're not in a good place to be fighting it without your without your knowledge and without your help right and so no you won't necessarily see any obvious signs It's also worth noting here that the difference between hiding your sin and temptation and fighting it is substantial and you should never get those two things confused. Just because somebody isn't giving you signs doesn't mean that they are fighting it. Right? They may be giving themselves to it entirely, very secretly. Now, I haven't really given you that much uh, in hedging, have I? <laughs> so, so let me go one step further and say, and of course, it's also true that you may see 
any of these things that I just gave as signs and in somebody who isn't tempted in this area, right? Any one of them or multiple of them. And so do not go into any conversation with somebody or any kind of counseling or teaching situation assuming that you know what's going on. That because they struggle with this and this and this, therefore they have the same underlying problem as this other person who had those same things. It doesn't mean that there's no trajectories in life that you can't, or that you can't follow them and you can't find out and that you... I mean, when you know something is wrong, you know something is wrong. But be ready to be surprised, is what I'm saying, with what you find out is wrong. Don't force all of the symptoms to always point to the same diagnosis. There's a lot of other symptoms that you haven't seen yet that are going to change once you start digging in there and finding out what's going on. Now, we are not trying to be, and I am not calling you to be paranoid seeing homosexuals under every rock. But particularly today, it is a failure failure for you not to know that somebody in your church is struggling with this temptation. And so you ask them. And what do you ask them? Are you a homosexual? Is that what you ask them? Not generally. You don't want to ask them that. And why don't you want to ask them that? Anybody want to answer? (laughs) Because you are leading them into sin by asking them that. You are demanding that they lie to you. Have you guys ever seen parents do this with their kids? Now, Johnny, were you being kind to your brother when I was out of the room? I didn't see. Why is he crying? Is it because you were being so kind and gentle to him? Yes, mommy. Oh, good. I'm so happy that you were being kind and gentle. Don't teach your kids to lie. Have you guys ever seen that? Have you guys ever done that? I mean, you're demanding that your children lie to you by the question that you ask. Are you a homosexual? If the question that we ask is designed to force people to claim an identity outside of Christ or implicitly deny that they struggle with the sin, which one are people who grew up in a Christian church going to pick? Seriously. You've only given them two choices. Which one are they going to pick? It's a lose-lose situation that you put people in at that point. That doesn't mean that there's never the time to ask that question. 
but it's going to be vanishingly rare, really. And I think that this problem, this false dichotomy that we place on people, either you are a choose your identity outside of Christ, now claim it for yourself, Either you are a gay, you are a homosexual, and everything that that entails, including performing sodomy on somebody else, right? That's what that means in our culture today. I have given myself over to this sin. I am wholly devoted to it in opposition to Christian faith. Or I don't have this problem. Those are the two choices that, we, that we've placed before people, and so it's a lose-lose situation. I think that because of that, we've, we've begun to understand the dilemma that we've placed people in, and this is where our desire on the part of the church, on the part of Christians, who are tempted in this way, to come out in the church is coming from. What they're they're desperate for initially is the opportunity to confess their sin and to repent and to receive help. And yet we give them no opportunity to because we require that they totally reject God before we're willing to say that there's any kind of problem and offer any kind of help. And so what happens? Well, eventually they're, they're saying, I just want to be able to be honest. I just want to be able to say what I am and who I am and what I'm struggling with. Is that okay? Can I come out in the church? Do you see where this, this movement comes from? And do you see why you have such a, a, a you know, a built-in kind of uh, inclination to say yes, come out. We want you. We want to provide a safe space for you. We want you. We want there to be gay Christians in our church, right? Isn't I mean that's what that's what we. That, of course, we want that because we want to be able to help them. And yet, is that what we have? Is that what we really want? Because to have gay Christians in the church is then to, to accept the claim that there is such a thing as an identity in Christ based on our sin. Of course that's not what we want. And yet they want to stop lying. They want to be honest. And these are the only two choices that we offer. And this concept of how we talk to them, what I want you to see is that by asking them that question, by placing that, that, that choice, that false antithesis or dichotomy before them, right? by forcing them to go down one of these two roads, what we are doing is we are, we are playing right into 
the homosexualist agenda. And the reason that, we, that I say that, this is, this is in lockstep with their agenda to force everybody to acknowledge that there is such a thing as a homosexual. Do you get, do you get what I'm saying? I know I'm kind of, I'm jumping fast here, right there, okay? But we need to be careful that our reasoning is more advanced than the very carefully thought out and planned agenda in the homosexualist movement. And that we aren't, we aren't just walking along behind them using their words like dummies Having lost the argument before it begins, we don't even realize what it is that we're agreeing with, with the words that we're using. We don't even understand what kinds of arguments have already been just skipped right over by jumping straight forward to that kind of language. Now, once you know who is tempted and who is sinning in this area? What do you do? Well, you do, you do give them hope that God can and will sanctify them. Now, do you notice I didn't say justify them, I said sanctify them. I didn't say save them. I said sanctify them. And of course, if we can't get the definition of justification and sanctification straight in our minds, we're done for. Will God justify them? Yes, but often you're talking to somebody who is already a Christian. <laughs> and they're still tempted in this way. And so what do you say? Well, don't worry, you're, you're justified. You're saved. It's okay. No. And so do give them hope that God can and will sanctify them because that is God's promise. That he will bring the work that he has begun to completion in his people. And do not assume or let the person that you are speaking to assume that that means that they will suddenly miraculously lose their twisted desires. That can happen. God does do that in the process of sanctification on occasion, and it is miraculous, right? But the point of it being miraculous is that all the rest of the time that he does it, well, it's still just as miraculous. It's much more normal. <laughs> when Jesus made water into wine, that was a miracle, right? Right? 
But you know what else is a miracle? When you crush grapes and put them in a wineskin and they turn into wine. (laughs) Those are the two different kinds of miracles that we're talking about when we're talking about sanctification that happens suddenly and miraculously versus the sanctification that happens slowly over the course of a lifetime. So don't let them assume that means that suddenly their desires are just going to be holy and righteous and everything's going to be good and they're never going to want to do anything bad. And if that hasn't happened to them, that they must not be justified yet. The process of putting our sin to death is long and arduous. Can any of you come up with Worse words, agonizing uh, and perpetual. It is never ending and painful. Perpetually painful. There you go. We can start alliterating too. And this, that, that point right there, that is where you will lose people. And that right there is where you will lose your nerve. Because as you are calling a man to be a man, and it doesn't matter what, what his particular sin looks like. If you're talking about a homosexual who is engaged in a total lifestyle given over to sin or if you're talking about the guy who just isn't good at holding a job down. All right? Your job is to teach him to be a man. To act like a man. To be strong. And right there, what he's going to say to you is, Don't you see how far I've come? Don't you have any encouragement for me? Haven't I changed an awful lot? And all of that is, is to say what? What's he, what's he trying to say to you? Lighten up, chill out, leave me alone, I have made it far enough in my fight against sin. Right? Haven't I done enough? Hasn't God required enough of me? Can he, can you, can you really expect me to go from here to here, how can you, that's, that's to discount this long distance that I've already come. You see, I've climbed up through toil and tribulation the path of sanctification. All I'm asking for is a little bench to rest on for the rest of my life. <laughs> Isn't that it, right? Just a comfortable seat. 
There are comfortable seats spread around on the path. They're alpine slides, right? They go straight back to the bottom and fast. You stop fighting and it's over. You're back at the bottom doing the exact same thing that you thought you were done with. Six years of fighting to get from point A to point B and you're like, okay, I'm just going to take a week now before I start on to point C. And then you're starting back over at point A. And you say to them, no, don't sit down. No, don't rest. No, don't stop killing your sin. Either you're putting sin to death or sin is putting you to death. And so they will accuse you at that point of being a legalist. They will accuse you at that point right there of not understanding grace, of not preaching the gospel, of not giving them enough hope, of not demonstrating love. And it doesn't matter how much love you've poured out on them. It doesn't matter how you've demonstrated it. It doesn't matter how often they have left ecstatically hopeful about the future and their ability to fight sin after meeting with you. When they determine that they are done fighting, you are a Pharisee. You are a Pharisee. The moment you tell them that they need to fight against their sin, the moment you point out any sin to them, the moment you say God requires, you are a Pharisee. Do give them hope. Don't let it be a false hope of what sanctification looks like. Don't assume that everybody struggling with a particular temptation struggles the same way or for the same reasons. For example, sexual dysphoria where you feel like you're a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa, right? Is a completely different thing in young children than in people who have sexual dysphoria after puberty. They're totally different things. Almost universally, the latter has a connection of some sort to sexuality of the erotic sort. If you are if you are feeling as though you're a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped inside a man's body after you've gone through puberty, there's something in your erotic sexuality that is twisted, that needs to be corrected. But if this is before puberty, before erotic sexuality has awakened and you're dealing with a four-year-old that 
is a boy who keeps wanting to dress up in the princess dress and really obviously is very confused about who he's supposed to be. He needs something totally different, right? And yet, he needs at the core to be taught what it means to be a man and to be called to be a man. And so in that sense, it's the same. Similarly, some homosexuals might have specific things that cause their desires to turn away from the opposite sex, while others might have completely different things or no obvious things at all. Right? We recognize that there are differences. And my point is, don't make the assumption that everything's just going to be the same from everybody that, that you're dealing with that struggles with the same temptation. But recognize that the work that they need to give themselves to is the same. What else do you need to do? Well, you need to stop being afraid of shame. Stop being afraid of shame. God shames his people regularly in the Bible for their disobedience. Think about reading the prophets and think about how often you think that the people of Israel must just have really been idiots. Why do you think they must be idiots when you read that for the, you know, when, <laughs> when God says, just do what the king of Babylon says. I, just, I will rescue you. And they say, no, we're going to go to Egypt. And even the king of Babylon has said to them, I know you think Pharaoh is going to save you, but... <laughs> Don't count on Pharaoh. And God is going, don't count on Pharaoh. And then what do they do? They count on Pharaoh, right? What's wrong with them? Are they idiots? Yes, they're idiots. And, and, and yeah, and so are we. And that's the first thing to recognize is that so are we. But the second thing to realize is that the reason you think that they're idiots when you read the Old Testament is because God is writing in such a way as to point out how idiotic what they're doing is. Which is to say, God, his, through his Holy Spirit, inspired the scriptures to shame his people for their behavior. Isn't it? I mean, when you get into Judges and it just starts repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating that they then turned away from God and then they returned away from God again and then he rescued them and then they turned away from God again and then he rescued them. And What is the point? Well, yes, the point is that God will rescue his people anytime that they repent. But the other point, right? <laughs> the other point is don't be so stupid. Don't you see what you're going into? Don't do it again. And, you know, I, I can say that to somebody who has just watched 
his life fall apart and he's in jail for drugs and his dad is dead now from drugs and his mom is in jail for drugs and his sister's in jail for drugs and it's like, dude, do you not see what your life is ahead of you? If you, if you stay on this path, do you see what it's going to be? And he says, yes. It's a path of death. It's a path of destruction. It's a path straight to hell. And there's no denying it. And for me to ask the question, what's ahead of you if you stay on this path, is to shame him for being on the path and to shame him away from staying on the path. It's shameful. Don't be afraid of shame. It's especially tempting for us to think that shame is out of bounds for homosexuals. It isn't. The path is a path to hell. The path is a path of death. The path is a path of repeatedly, what is sin? Sin is always irrational, right? Always irrational. That's that path. We ought to be ashamed to stay on it. You ought to be ashamed to stay on your path of your temptations and your sins. Why do you think that the homosexual isn't allowed to receive that help? that help that God gives to his people over and over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way. Don't be afraid of shame. Do remember that God explicitly describes where this sort of sin comes from. And this is tendentious. I want to read to you Romans 1, 21 through 27. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Idolatry of the human form, the body of man and woman, 
that God created. That is central to our culture today. And it isn't really that hard to see that men who are so completely self-conscious about their appearance have an idolatry of the human body, is it? I mean, appearance. Being utterly and totally concerned about your appearance is to say that there's, there's, you have raised up the appearance of man to a place that it should not be raised up to, right? And so I know immediately you're saying, but there's a lot of heterosexual men that are just the same. In fact, there was the guy on my freshman hall who would always come out of his room to the, the, the closet door, had a mirror on it. He'd come out into the hall and and then he'd go back in his room and he'd change his clothes and try again. <laughs> and he wasn't a homosexual. But he was gay. He was effeminate, right? Yeah, yeah, heterosexual men are just the same. They've given themselves to idolatry of the human form. And have we forgotten how many lesbian women are simply turning away from the harm that has been done to them by the men who have an idolatry of the human form. Do you understand what I'm saying? They have been harmed by heterosexual men who worship not God, but what they can get out of the idol that they have, which is a woman's body. And they'll take it however they see fit. And so both the men and the women exchanged the natural function for the unnatural, exchanged being men and women for being what they're not. And I know that you want me to say that this, is a, that this is a big picture kind of cultural sort of thing, that this happens on the big picture scale, right? That, that an entire culture gives itself over to the worship of the human form and then some men in that culture end up being uh, homosexual because of that. But do cultural changes and cultural Uh, consequences for cultural changes happen only generically? Only in the big picture? That's impossible. They always have to have the particulars, the particular people, right? Or the general isn't there. 
And so this is not just a general thing, but it is a particular thing. This is God's, this is God's description of why and how this comes about. And now you want me to say, but it doesn't say that it's the only way that it comes about. And I just want you to say that it comes about this way. Sometimes. Now, that's what you need to do once you know who is tempted. You need to remember shame. You need to remember how this happens, how it comes about. You need to give them hope and not a false hope that they won't have to keep fighting. But much of the homosexualist agenda revolves around pushing everybody to acknowledge that these people are unique. These people are different. They can't be expected to be like everybody else because they aren't like everybody else. But what if they are pretty much just like everybody else? And it's just that they're insisting that they are different. One of the authors of that uh, paper research summary that my dad sent around yesterday was a guy named Dr. Paul McHugh. And in a book that I read of his, he explains how to deal with multiple personality disorder. Does anybody know what the treatment, the only known effective treatment for multiple personality disorder is? Anybody? The treatment is, are you ready for this? Ignore it. (laughs) It is the only way to make any progress with multiple personality disorder. Why? Sounds like the the most, the, the, the meanest, most hopeless, counterintuitive, cruel thing to do, doesn't it? But what do they do instead? Instead of focusing on the multiple personality disorder, what they do is they focus on what the practical difficulties that the person is having in their life are and how they can mitigate those, those practical... In other words, let's stop looking at the past and how all of this came about and let's just start trying to move forward with making the little changes that we can make to help you actually live a life that's a little bit better. Again, this is just a psychiatric treatment. This isn't a Christian thing, right? And their problems don't go away immediately. It's not like this is a magic solution. And yet, but what is magical is that typically the multiple personality dis- disorder and all of the problems that are stemming from that are gone within days. Entirely gone within days. Days. 
And this is because multiple personality disorder does not exist apart from the context in which it is created by a counselor. Do you understand that? It simply does not exist on its own without it being through suggestion of all sorts of forms created in somebody by the counselor. And so they could have been in counseling for years, for decades. And you know, the thing is, it, their multiple personality disorder only gets worse and worse and worse and worse and more severe and crazy symptoms. And the moment you start ignoring it, it's just gone. <laughs> to a certain degree, hear me carefully, to a certain degree, perverse sexual sin is similar. This is not to say that temptations do not exist or that they aren't strong, and they certainly won't just go away if we ignore them. Okay? That's not my point. However, often the most effective help that you can provide will be recognizing the similarities between these men and women and every other man and woman. Even including how their underlying desires of their heart work themselves out into sin. That those underlying desires are the same and that they work themselves out into sin in the same way. And so in this context, I want to explain that there are two reasons why, for example, the last thing a homosexual man needs to be is treated as different in his interactions with you as his pastor or in groups in the church. <clears throat> first, first reason is because it is quite typical that the homosexual man is so completely self-centered that he thinks he is unique and must need something very unique, very special, very tailored to him. But you do not want to make him feel that you are uncaring and that's immediately where you, you know, I, you, what you think I'm going to say is just ignore, ignore his differences, ignore the uniqueness and, and I am. You don't want to feed his assumption that he is like DNA and that to be, you know, Unraveled, you need to find exactly the perfect set of proteins, and you need to, that's going to require you to do a lot of research, 
a lot of studying and experimentation and you're going to have to learn every little thing that makes him feel like he may have been slighted or jilted or he wasn't treated perfectly right in this way or there was this thing that was just made me feel this little slight way and and all of that you know all of those are little pieces of the of the dna that need to you know you need to take all of that into account and in coming up with the perfect protein that's going to do i know anything about dna no i don't have the foggiest clue what i'm talking about i just made this up but uh any of you who are scientists know that <laughs> I'm very wrong, says the guy who has any understanding of DNA, right? But it doesn't matter because if we think this, then it's right. This is what we do, right? We're, we, need, we need just the, just the right thing to interpret this all correctly and come up with the key that's going to change and unlock and suddenly produce the magical solution, which is Complete sanctification without any work. Right? And absolving from all of the sin that happened to him. I mean that he did. That self-absorption is part of what feeds the homosexual sin. Don't feed homosexual sin in your counseling. Don't validate that claim that the homosexualists make that he is somehow so unique and special. In reality, the homosexual is more like a special snowflake. You know how every snowflake is unique? But it doesn't take a lot of careful study to unlock it. Just a little bit of heat. Every last one of them melts just the same. We're all such unique, special snowflakes, aren't we? <laughs> but we just need to melt. We just need a little bit of heat and light applied to us. And then... Then what? We're not so special anymore. But the second reason that the homosexual man feels as though he needs to be treated different <clears throat> and that it's not helpful is because he thinks that his struggle with sin is somehow different than everybody else's. The less he thinks that all your teaching on sexuality really applies to him, <laughs> the less he can be helped by all of your other teaching on sexuality. See, if any time you address what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, how men are to behave, how they're to repent of their lack of responsibility, right? All of this is teaching that you need to be doing on a regular basis, and yet, if in your counseling, you're, you're convincing him that he's different, then every last time you preach on it, every last time you teach on it, you have given him the nice coating of wax on his back for it to just roll right off. Is that what your goal is? 
It shouldn't be. But it's not just that he's going to feel as though his his life is his his sin is validated as being different. It's also that that will cause him to feel more like an outcast in the church, somebody who is very, very different than everybody else here. Somebody who is the one person who can't be helped. The one person who can't be looking forward by faith and hope to a changed life through the work of sanctification by the grace of God. Now, if you walk this way back, you'll find that a lot of singles already feel like outcasts and want us to turn our teaching to them specifically. Some of you men may be here single and may resemble this implication. Certain men just aren't happy with any teaching on sexuality until you've taken a good hour or two and talked about what this means for single people. (laughs) But the single man needs the same stinking thing, people. He needs to be taught how to be a man. And the whole shtick of, okay, but what does this mean for single people is a rejection of all of the teaching that you've just given about what it means to be a man. And he says, yeah, but it was in the context all about marriage. And I say, well, whoop-de-doo, so is most of the Bible. Homosexuals just take this a big step further. They're doubly different. Not only are they single, but they don't even like women. So obviously nothing that you say to them when you're teaching about what it means for a man and a woman to come together in the marriage bed could possibly have anything to say to them. If you give it to the single person, you can't help but give it to the single homosexual person, right? <laughs> now, at this point, you say, but what about that key difference? That, that thing that actually is different between homosexuals and heterosexuals. The fact that there's no legitimate outlet for their desire. Well, the similarities are actually greater than most of us want to admit. Because we all want to do things sexually that cannot be made legitimate. That in their nature are sinful, just like homosexual sex is in its nature illegitimate and sinful, right? And 
we all struggle with the differentness of the opposite sex in seeking relationship with them. They're kind of freaky. (laughs) Those women, those men. (laughs) And you say, but the homosexual has nothing that he desires that is legitimate, right? They're, They're, and I say, really? Really, they don't want they don't want companionship? Isn't that, isn't that legitimate? Isn't that the whole point that they're trying to drive home? That there's this legitimate desire there that, that they're trying to meet? Yeah. They have that legitimate desire, don't they? And so they're just kind of normal. Just kind of similar. Like I said from the beginning, in fact, what he usually needs is just more in a larger dose of the same medicine, not different medicine. And so a lot of teaching homosexuals, a lot of ministering to homosexuals is having an effective teaching to everybody about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. This requires you to model your sex in all your interactions, not just in some areas. And so pastors have to be manly in our preaching. Not be soft and fearful and effeminate in our preaching. Or not be manly in our preaching and then soft and effeminate in person. Or any of those other combinations that undercut your message. Right? I was... Just talking to somebody who is explaining that he had read somebody on the Gospel Coalition website who is solid on sexuality. He makes good points and arguments and argues good solid things and then he listened to him talk, watched a video of him talk on YouTube and he was just like this the whole time. That guy's not solid on sexuality and I don't care what he's written or where. He is communicating to everybody um, opposing messages. He is fighting with himself. Can a house divided against itself stand? No. Can a man who's punching himself in the face and throwing himself down the stairs fight the enemy? No. You women who are ministering to other women, be modest personally, both in appearance and in relation to other men. None of you be focused on outward appearances. 
An effeminate man can be just as vain about his beard as he is about his pretty shaved face. (laughs) Your beard does not make you manly. I mean it. It doesn't. It can be a good thing. It can be a nice way of repenting against your pretty boy looks. But generally, if that's what you're doing, you know what you're going to grow is you're going to grow a neck beard. (laughs) You're not going to be growing a nicely coiffed and oiled and carefully trimmed beard, you're going to be making a point of, like John the Baptist, dressing in skins and eating locusts and honey. Right? I mean, you guys, all of this stuff about beards, I see it. And they're, and they're talking about what oils they use on their beards and, and going on and on and on about their beards. And I'm thinking, you're, you're pretty vain, aren't you? You're pretty obsessed about your appearances, aren't you? You are pretty effeminate with your big, manly, bushy beard, aren't you? <laughs> I'm trying to shame. My point is that we are not trying to create the Spartans' version of manhood. Do you understand? What did Sparta do? They trained their men to be men who fought, right? And they were all gay, and gay in the homosexual sex sort of way. And also in the very effeminate, taking care of exactly how their nice beards needed to look sort of way too. We are seeking to create God's version of manhood, not Sparta's. The outward appearance of a man will tell you plenty about him. Your job is to deal with his outward appearance primarily as it demonstrates a sinful and effeminate vanity. Do you you see the difference between teaching men to be obsessed about their appearance by telling them how they need to look and how they need to treat their hair and grow their beard and this, that, and the other? And and, and, okay, yeah, you know, there there are all kinds of practical things that you are going to tell people to do that are like that. And you may tell the one guy it's time for him to shave off his beard so that he can be a man, while you turn around the next day and you tell the other guy that it's time to grow a beard so that he can learn to be a man. Right? Because what you're trying to do is put to death vanity in each of them. But that's the only attention that you pay to the outward appearance. You might assume that you can simply tease somebody for being vain. 
or mock or quietly shake your head in disgust or any number of passive things. But without deep instruction, those are not going to accomplish much today. The entire culture is concerned about appearances. Your deep instruction has to be deep and wide. You need to be thinking about what your interactions on Facebook communicate about the importance of appearances. Right? Now, I have some other practical things here that I want to tell you before I end. One is that in your church, it's very important that you establish a culture of women and men gathering separately for the work to happen that needs to happen of older women instructing younger women, right? Of older men instructing younger men. It is a different work with a different feel and a different, uh, a different culture within that culture of your church that establishes that it is good and right for men and women to gather separately and to instruct one another. Each of those groups then will have totally different feels to them. And I know that that doesn't, I know that doesn't give you a lot to go on, but just try it. And what you'll find is that it's exactly true that when the women get together at Panera for a surprise party, they start talking about what childbirth is like and what the so-and-so did on such-and-such a birth. And it's like, you know, I'm glad I was not there. The culture would have been different if I had been there. You can split up for prayer. You should split up for prayer at least sometimes. At least sometimes. You can split up for Sunday school. You can split up for Bible studies. You can split up all over the place between men and women. Men should not be going to bridal showers. Okay? Now you, now you may think, why in the world would you say that? What man in his right mind would ever go to a bridal shower? And I'd say, you'd be surprised. You might just be surprised. But that needs to be taught. Today, we are so confused, we don't have any idea. You have to actually instruct to that level. And then when you do, people are going to be like, well, what are you trying to say? Are you saying that men and women are different? <laughs> yep. Well, it's going to be harder than that. They're going to come up with some other newer, worser accusation for you, and you're going to have to cop to that one too, generally. But the types of things, my point here is that the types of things that people need to be taught are everything. 
about what it means to be a man or a woman. Okay? You cannot assume that they have seen any of this in their homes, regardless of whether they grew up, grew up in a Christian home or not. You cannot assume that people have, uh, even if they have seen it, that they have understood it. You cannot assume that even if they have seen and understood it, that they have practiced it. And so I was talking to my wife and she was talking about someone she knows who, you know, 25, I think, years old or, or older, is saying, I've, I've never cleaned a window. I don't know how to clean a window. What does that have to do with manhood and womanhood? Well, not, not so much, except that you recognize how simple it is to clean a window, right? And yet, and yet you need to be taught. And the most obvious, blatant, in-your-face kinds of things about what it means to be a man or a woman or what you should or shouldn't be doing, people are clueless. Don't take it for granted. Don't think that you're insulting them by telling them that men shouldn't be going to bridal showers. They'll be like, some of them will just be like, oh, good, thanks, I, I didn't know that. I'm glad to know that now. Practical, practical instructions to men and women are different. They happen generally in different contexts with different people doing the teaching. But when you're a pastor and you're preaching and you're preaching to men and women, don't avoid making the application specific to men and to women and making it distinct and, and different. You know, moms are different than dads. And the kids out there all know that their mom is different from their dad. <laughs> so when you're talking to the kids and you're saying, you know, when mom goes into crazy mom mode and they're all going, uh-huh, <laughs> You're teaching the mom, aren't you? And you're teaching the dad and you're teaching the kids. You're teaching all of them how to be men and women. There's a difference. And what is the, what is the central reality of manhood that they need to be taught? It's responsibility. And I think I think that the central reality that women need to be taught is modesty. Or it's very closely connected with it. I'm happy to hear others' possible suggestions. But regardless, you pastors, you need to be explicitly telling specific older women in your church to get to work. Teaching the younger women. I have just seen within the last two years that there is no instruction by older women to younger women happening in churches today. 
I was shocked to find out. It's just not happening. And that may include your wife, telling your wife it's time for her to be the older woman that she doesn't think she can be. And that means whether the younger women want to hear it or not, and it means whether that older woman thinks she has anything to say to them or not. (laughs) Because why does she think she doesn't have anything to say to them? Well, because they're in a completely different context. They have different basic assumptions. They're living a different life. They're working. They're doing this, that, and the other. And here I am. I'm over here. I'm so different. And it's like, well, duh. (laughs) You want them to be like you. Teach them how to be. I go into their house and they don't even know how to clean. Yep. That's why, that's why I was giving premarital counseling to a couple one time and the woman started just going on and on about how, so, how she was so thankful that one time the pastor took uh, 10, 10 minutes maybe, I don't know, maybe it was 50 minutes to just go off on a rant about teaching people how to clean a kitchen. Because here she was, she was living with four other girls who didn't have the foggiest clue how to clean anything. And so the pastor was left teaching women how to clean from the pulpit in detail. Why does that happen? Because we need instruction on everything. Everything. Let's pray.